Dear friends in Christ, today we kick off a new six-week sermon series here at St. Michael entitled Mama Say, Mama Say, where we're going to be looking at uh, biblical examples of mothers and fathers and how God worked through them as we explore a number of family life ministry topics, such as parent-child relationships, faith development, faith legacy, trusting in God, uh, dedicating our children's lives to the service of the Lord, and so forth. And today, as you probably can tell from the music and the children's message, we're going to focus on parent-child relationships. And I hope and pray that our time in God's Word today will be applicable to you wherever you may be at on the spectrum, as a child, as a hopeful future parent, as a parent of young children, a parent of teens, maybe a parent whose kids are well past the nest, to a grandparent who plays a significant role in the lives of your grandchildren, or someone who may be an aunt or an uncle, someone who's not a parent, but you have the opportunity to have influence and be concerned about the faith development of a young child, someone very special to you. And we begin today with our gospel lesson from Luke chapter 2, a familiar story And it's the only childhood story we have of Jesus uh, in the Gospels. We basically, in the New Testament, go from Jesus' birth narrative to pretty much the start of his public ministry, the last three years of his life. And this is the only story we have that gives us a little glimpse into his childhood and family life. And I think there's some keys that we can glean from that today. Um, Mary and Joseph are first-time parents, and they cannot find Jesus. And I guess just as a side note here, maybe this can give us some pause for comfort in our family, that even in a special family like Mary and Joseph and Jesus, everything didn't always quite go by playbook. Sometimes there were misfires, miscommunications, and I think that gives us some hope for our family too when maybe things don't go according to plan always. But anyway, Mary and Joseph were concerned, as any parent would be, uh, maybe a little embarrassed as well. Who knows? A uh, little background to this. Uh, as good Jews, they would be going down among with others at this time of the year to celebrate the Feast of Passover in Jerusalem at the temple. And this was an important pilgrimage uh, for the Jewish people. Uh, they would go down often as a group and The text indicates they were traveling back in a group in a caravan. And they probably assumed Jesus perhaps was with the other boys his age hanging out. And at some point they discover, where's our son? And I think we could probably understand the concern that they would have. And maybe there's been a time that we as a parent or a grandparent, for a few seconds that seemed like minutes or for a few minutes that maybe seemed like hours, have we ever misplaced one of our children or grandchildren? At the park, at the mall at the grocery store. Uh, I think we can understand the concern. And after three days of frantically searching, they go back to Jerusalem and they find Jesus in the temple, in his father's house, teaching and interacting with the rabbis. And we pick up our text here in Luke 2, beginning with verse 48. When his parents saw him, they were astonished. His mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us like this? Your father and I have anxiously been searching for you. Jesus says, why were you searching for me? Didn't you know I had to be in my father's house? But they did not understand. Now, Mary and Joseph would be worried sick as as any good parent would be. Not knowing where Jesus was would stress them. Now, yes, he's not your average 12-year-old boy. He is the son of God, but yet he is their child as well. He was teaching and doing his father's business. 
And I think this is probably one of the best-known stories in Scripture. Many of us learned this from early on. And I think from this we can glean three keys to effective parent-child relationships and overall family relationships, healthy family relationships for today. Whatever age you may be at, whatever stage in life you may be at with your family, whatever the particular makeup of your family. And the first key is this. No family, no parent-child relationship is going to be free from stress and pressure and misfires and conflict and other issues. The key is to deal with these inevitabilities the best that we can with the Christ-like love that God has first shown us. Now, to make it very clear, Jesus was perfect. He truly was. He never sinned. And although sometimes our kids may think they're perfect, or times we may come off as acting like perfect as parents and grandparents when we're not, Jesus truly was. And we see illustrated in this story some family stress and some family concern there. And wherever there are people gathered, especially in family, there is the potential for conflict and concern. Because unlike Jesus, the rest of us, young and old, are sinful. We are not perfect. Many times you hear the old saying, you can pick your friends but not your family. And I think what's meant by that is that sometimes the people we love the most, that we hold the most dear, that we would die for, that we live together with, sometimes in the rough and tumble of family life, we probably butt heads the most, we may say some of the harshest things, sometimes we may treat one another much less kindly than others. Things happen in families. Reminds me of a story in my previous uh, ministry uh, before coming to St. Michael. I worked in a Lutheran district office where I worked with a lot of congregations around the United States. And that first fall and winter of 2001, I was dispatched to go out to um, one of our congregations in um, Hannibal, Missouri, up Mark Twain country, up the northeast part of Missouri on the Mississippi River. There were some issues between the staff and congregational leadership. Uh, It was during Advent. I was going to speak to them after the Advent service. So I worshiped with them that night. And they had a little meet and greet afterwards where I got to shake the hands of the people of the congregation. And one gentleman came up to me. He said, my name's Peter. Nice to meet you. And he said, I bet you work a lot with people in your line of work. I said, yes, I do. And he said, well, I'm a farmer. And he said, there's many a day, including today, I'd rather be out work with my pigs and my sheep in the field than having to deal with my family at times. And he said it with a wink and a smile. And I think he was kidding. But I don't think he was totally kidding. And I think most days we don't feel like Farmer Pete. But there may be days in the rough and tumble that we do. Winston Churchill, the great prime minister during uh, the World War II era in England, once said, we shall fight on the beaches, we shall fight on the landing grounds, we shall fight in the fields, we shall fight in the streets, we shall fight in the hills. I heard a comedian on TV recently Um, make a joke about these words, which Churchill meant as great words of inspiration to the citizens of England during the darkest days of World War II. You know, we shall fight in the beaches, we shall fight in the streets. He said that describes a typical American 21st century family vacation. (laughs) Things happen in families, but we love them. Jesus was studying, he was teaching, he was doing his father's business in his father's house. And I think it shows that sometimes it's not unusual that children may view things differently than their parents. Just like a husband sometimes will view things differently than the wife, and vice versa. Conflict, misunderstandings, pressure, stress, rough and tumble in relationships. 
that's part of living together as a mom, as a dad, as a family today. A family in which everybody would agree about everything all the time would, first of all, not be healthy, and second of all, it's not possible in a fallen, sinful world. Mary and Joseph were concerned about their boy. They would have had rules and guidelines for his development and for his safety as any loving parent would do. When they came across Jesus, they found him. Jesus was respectful to his parents, stating he was doing what his heavenly father would have him do. So in addition to the first key, responding to some of the inevitable pressures and stresses in family life and parent-child relationships with a Christ-like love, the second key I think we get from this story is one of the cornerstones of a family needs to be mutual respect. Mary and Joseph were concerned. They were worried. And when they found Jesus, the text does not indicate that they overreacted or went into overpanic or used abusive language or anything. They didn't ground him for life, in case we tried that technique. I don't know how you ground the Son of God for life. But rather, they, they, they expressed their concern with respect. And remember how this family even began in respect. The respect and trust Joseph would have had to have in Mary and in God when he found out that Mary was pregnant with a child that was not his, but she had been faithful to him, and the child was the Son of God. It took a great deal of faith and trust on Joseph's part in Mary and in God in the very divine, the very miraculous, the very unique origins of this special family. And Jesus responded with respect to his parents. I can only imagine how stressed out Laura and I would be if we could not find one of our children for three days. And notice how the story ends, verse 51. And Jesus went down with them to Nazareth. He was obedient to his earthly mom and dad. His mother treasured all these things in her heart, and Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and with man. Mary and Joseph were average parents, uh, no more, no less sinful than you or I. Like you and I, as parents or grandparents, they had not taken the definitive course with a 100% money-back guarantee on being a parent. Uh, there was not the step-by-step -step dummies guide with explicit directions that you could follow to be a parent. Of course, as men, we wouldn't follow it anyway, right? We'd throw the manual out. We don't follow directions. Uh, but Mary and Joseph was do doing their best, responding in love, the love that God had first shown them, and trying to have a home based in mutual respect. Children and grandchildren, nieces and nephews, the young people we care about are a blessing from the Lord. They're a gift. They're a joy. And there's days there's their challenges as well. Um, I think so much happens in the lives of our children today. And during certain periods of time, I think we know the first five years of life, birth to age five, the tremendous changes that they go through and the implications for parenting and child development, early childhood education. Also, uh, it, I was reading recently, between the ages of 12 and 17, many parenting experts say that those five years happens to be the start of the time frame Jesus is at in this story. Also are years of equally tremendous change and challenges for young people intellectually and socially and physically and emotionally and, yes, spiritually. One parenting expert in that study wrote that the changes that the average 12 to 17-year-old goes through in those five years can age the average parent 30 years. <laughs> I hope not. I got three kids in that cage group. <laughs> not long for this world if that's true. Uh, John Wilmot, a Christian parenting expert, said, Before I was, I was married, I had three children, or three theories about raising kids. 
Now that I'm married and I have three kids, I have no theories about raising children. <laughs> children are. They're a joy and they're a blessing. But differences in peaks and valleys and ups and downs during the course of the relationship between a parent and a child are inevitable. And the first two keys speak to what we as parents and grandparents are always striving to do, very imperfectly, of course, to respond with a Christ-like love and mutual respect. The book of Proverbs is a book that's so filled with wisdom for our lives uh, in living in so many aspects, relationships across so many different levels, but also speaks clearly to parent-child relationships. And from Proverbs chapter 15, the first couple verses, a gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. Uh, But the mouth of the fool gushes folly. The eyes of the Lord are everywhere, keeping watch on the wicked and the good. And it goes on, and it talks about gentle words versus harsh words. I mean, there's a time for harsh words, there's no doubt, depending on the circumstance. But many times, a gentle answer, a gentle word, may keep a concern from being elevated to a fight. It may keep a low-intensity fight again, child to parent or parent to child, from escalating into something much more serious where the devil can start to get his foothold in the anger and some of the emotions. Reminds me of a saying I heard a lot growing up in Indiana. I I just remember this for some reason. Uh, You you don't have to kill a mosquito with a sledgehammer. Uh, You know, sometimes on a scale of 0 to 10, with 10 being the greatest intensity, You don't always have to go in at a 9 or a 10 in terms of expressing a concern or dealing with an issue, child to parent, parent to child, when maybe at the level of 2 or 3 in intensity might do. St. Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 4 of speaking the truth in love. Now again, this cuts across and is good advice for all levels of relationships, but you think in terms of parent-child, grandparent-grandchild relationships. There's times when you need to confront someone. Sometimes we do one but not the other. Sometimes we may be very much what we feel speaking the truth, child to parent, parent to child, but maybe we're not doing it very lovingly. Or we're lovingly beating around the bush, but maybe we're not speaking to the truth in the heart of the matter, and are we doing anybody any good? Jesus was at an age in Jewish life when he was starting to take on additional responsibilities of adulthood. He was not trying to hurt his parents by following the lead of his heavenly father to be in the temple. He felt he was following his heavenly father's will. And I guess one sub-point we can extrapolate from this is that even when sometimes kids are being good, they may drive us crazy. And I think in fairness, sometimes as parents or grandparents, even when we're doing good, we probably drive our kids or our grandkids crazy as well. The third key, the most important key that I think we derive from this story is what makes a family, a parent-child relationship ultimately successful is a shared faith in God. And we'll be building upon this in this series, and in about two weeks, I'll sort of have a part two to this message where we'll talk about dedicating our children's lives to the Lord. We'll explore this more fully. But again, from the book of Proverbs, this time chapter 22, Proverbs 22, 6 says, train a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not turn from it. Of all the sources that we could find for parenting advice, outside of Scripture or certainly from Scripture, which is the greatest source, I find no greater verse that speaks the job number one of mom and dad and increasingly in this world today, grandparents and others, than this verse. 
train a child in the way he should go. We want our children, we want our grandchildren to learn many things, to be prepared for many things in life. But if they don't know Jesus, if they don't have the love of Jesus in their heart, it's all for nothing. Teaching the faith to our children, being the primary shapers of that faith by the power of the Holy Spirit, is job number one of a parent. Whether the child is one or the child is 51, you as a parent, they're always your children. Going back to the story of Jesus in the temple, I think we see the love. I think we see the respect. But yet, Mary and Joseph also would have been concerned about Jesus' faith development. Yes, a special case. He was true God, the Son of Man, but he also was true boy. He was their boy as well. And the parents understood where he needed to be. And the story has a happy ending. And Jesus grew in wisdom and stature in favor with God and with man. And I think with this third key, we have seen the statistics. Every study I have seen has shown a positive correlation between a child who is regularly brought to worship by a parent and a grandparent and their continued faith walk in becoming a champion for their Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. These three keys are not perfect guarantees because we live in a fallen world. And as Brenda mentioned in the children's message, things happen in families. No family is perfect. Children will sometimes fall away from the Lord. Parents may drift from the Lord. Sometimes there's estrangements or periods of parent and child not speaking. Things happen in the rough and tumble of family life. But I think it's the best template that we've been given. In my years in ministry, uh, every study that I've seen on healthy families or in congregations where they had a real intentional family life ministry emphasis, the following six characteristics or traits are sort of what are the benchmarks that families should shoot for. And I'm just going to go through these very quickly. Traits of healthy families. Number one, words of appreciation and affirmation are consistently used. That, there's a culture of that in the family. Number two, the inevitable crises that come up in families tend to be dealt with in a positive and prayerful manner. My wife, Laura, and I were reminiscing the other day about when the kids, our three kids were much younger, how the little things caused such crises, like running out of ketchup. My kids loved ketchup when they were little. They dipped their chicken nuggets in ketchup. They dipped their fish in ketchup. They would dip their green beans in ketchup, and Laura would say, oh, no, don't let them do that. I said, well, if they eat their vegetables, you can blame their eating habits on me, not Laura. But, you know, when you'd hear that squeeze of the bottle, and there was no ketchup, and we went to the pantry, and oops, needs to go on the Myers list, you know, tempers can fray, or the toilet seat is left up, or five pairs of jeans are on the floor for seven days, and the kids keep stepping over it and never picking it up. Those little things can flare issues in families, let alone the serious crises. You get the diagnosis, your child has cancer, or you find out on a Friday afternoon that you've been pink-slipped, and you're already struggling to make ends meet in your family. Dealing with those in a positive, prayerful manner. Number three, spending time together intentionally and meaningfully. Number four, a high degree of commitment to one another. Five, regular good communication, and that could be a whole sermon in itself, these traits. And six, the most important trait, which matches up with our third key, a shared faith practice and love of the Lord. Families that worship together, pray together. I mean, this can happen in many different ways. Involved in service projects together, talk about the faith, model the faith in some way. 
It's been said children of every generation have failed to listen to their parents about X, Y, or Z, but they've never failed to imitate them in many areas, including spiritually. Our Old Testament reading today from Deuteronomy 6 that was read for us. Moses says, The Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord God with all your heart, all your soul, all your strength. And these commandments I give you today are to be in your hearts. Impress them upon your children. Talk about them. Put them on your door frames. Put them on the gates. Those are clear marching orders that God is delivering through Moses. Job number one for parents with the assistance of grandparents in the church as well today the faith development of children. Healthy parent-child relationships are ultimately rooted in a love that Christ has first shown us and a mutual respect that flows from that. No family is perfect. I liked how Brenda mentioned, you know, Team Smith or Team Jones. I'll tell you, Team Yule is far from perfect. My family is very far from perfect how things operate with these keys. And the thing that's true for every single one of us represented here today. But we are forgiven. Our Lord loves us. And he's there to help us and empower us and help equip us for this very important task that he has called us to. And we're going to talk about that a lot more in this series. For the times when we fall short, God is there to help us so that by his grace we may model family life and the faith, to other families in our schools, in our neighborhoods, and in our communities, to people who are not connected to the Lord. In conclusion, I, I recently told my three children last week in a different context, I can't even remember how it came up, I said, someday, well down the road when you become parents, uh, the number one job, the toughest job you will ever have is someday to be a parent. You will never have a tougher job. I said, secondly, you'll never have a more important job. And I said, thirdly, on most days, you'll have never a more satisfying, happy, fulfilling job. Parenting, being a child in this fallen, broken world, regardless of the age, the stage, or the makeup of your family, is difficult. But the good news today is that our God loves us. And our hope is in the gospel, that God loved us so much that he did send his son into this world as a baby, as a boy, as we read today, as a man. Lived the perfect life we couldn't, suffered and died on the cross, rose again so that those of us who believe in him someday may receive that promised crown of righteousness that he has won for us. And his help and his power and his forgiveness is there for us. Jesus changes lives. He transforms lives, and he can change and transform any aspect of a parent-child relationship, a difficult family dynamic, at any time, any stage in life. God is there. Jesus is there to help us and to transform us and equip us for this tough job that he's given us. A pastor was giving a children's message, and he threw out the following question to the kids. Why do you love God? The answer he got back best was this. A little boy, Justin, eight-year-old, said, well, I guess it just runs in my family. (laughs) May loving God just continue to run through our families, our parent-child relationships, and all of our relationships as we strive by the power of the Holy Spirit to be the hands and feet of Jesus within our family and outside as we work together in serving and connecting people with the living God. In the name of Jesus, amen.